So before we get started today, I'd like to thank Tracy in Boston, who says, thanks for the work you do. Tracy, thanks for your donation. I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Kimmy Fleming. And this is Moral Matters. Today, we're talking about a new framework for talking about clinician distress developed by the Workplace Change Collaborative through a federal grant from HRSA, the Health Resources Services Administration. Our guest today is Dr. Candace Chen. Dr. Chen is a pediatrician and an associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. She focuses on health workforce, primary care, health professions, and graduate medical education research and policy. She has both national and global expertise. So let's have a listen. Dr. Candace Chen, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me here. Welcome, Candace. So um, I, I want to let the listeners know in, in full disclosure that we got to know each other because Moral Injury of Healthcare is part of the team that you're leading along with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and the American Federation of Teachers Union as part of a federal research grant. And Candace, I wasn't involved in the initial response. I just joined Moral Injury of Healthcare about six months ago. Uh, can you describe a little bit about the notice of funding opportunity, what it asked for, and how your team responded to it? Yeah, absolutely. And if it's okay, I might take a step back. Um, sure. to the origin of why the federal government was even putting out this kind of funding opportunity. In Actually, in March of 2022, the Dr. Lorna Brain Act uh, was passed by Congress. But even before the Dr. Lorna Brain Act, um, related to the work that advocates in the field had been doing, um, Congress put out a little over $100 million um, under the Rescue Act to support grants out to organizations to work on addressing this issue of health worker burnout. And so in 2021, the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, released a funding opportunity, the notice of award that you were mentioning. And it called for organizations to come in and apply for funding to support work to address health worker and public safety worker as well, actually, um, mental health, to reduce suicide, to um, strengthen resilience, and to address this really rising and challenging issue of burnout. And as part of that funding opportunity announcement, that those awards, um, HRSA also put out an award for a technical assistance center. And that's actually what we applied for and were able to um, to to acquire and to and to start, and the technical assistance center is actually aimed at doing doing I would say two major things. The first one is is out of the organizational awards, they put out forty four awards, and part of our work as the technical assistance center is to support the work of the forty four. So sometimes you know I think the government puts out funding and um, it's really important to the organizations. Um, in fact, when we talk to the organizations through our work, they talked about how this was the first time that the federal government had put out this kind of funding, funding to focus on health workers, um, not necessarily to, to focus on improving outcomes for diabetes or outcomes for fill in the blank um, uh, medical problem, but actually to focus on the health workers. And, and it's actually critical for 
for the quality of care as well and for access for care. Because when your health workers aren't taken care of, um, they can lead um, and that affects access and that affects the quality of care. So it's really important from that perspective. Uh, but a lot of times when the funding goes out, the the various grants and the grantees and the organizations that got these awards, they don't get the chance to learn from each other. And so the technical assistance work was to help support the work of the 44 organizations, but then also to give them the opportunity to come together, to learn from each other, to, to improve their own programs based on the things that they learned from what's happening uh, across other programs. But it also, as the Technical Assistance Center gave us that chance to look across these 44 and to gather together those lessons learned, because our understanding was, is even though 44 grants um, is, is a good number of grants, um, and thank and you know we're thankful that the federal government supported 44 organizations to start working on this really difficult issue. Um, our understanding is, is that there were a lot more applications um, out there. And so there were a lot more organizations who are looking for this kind of funding, who are looking for this kind of support, um, who might also benefit then from the learnings that we could gather from the 44. Um, and so that was a major part of the Technical Assistance Center work. I should say the other big major part of the Technical Assistance work um, that was in that funding opportunity called for us to build a national framework for addressing health worker and public safety worker burnout. Um, and that I think is, is about gathering the lessons from the 44 and then helping to turn it so that other people can benefit from it, but at the same time, pulling from all of the developing research, all of the um, innovations, the expertise that's happening across the field and kind of pulling it all together and trying to turn it into something that can help everybody else uh, figure out what to do in this space. HRSA, and, and by the way, um, for all of our listeners, we have an episode with Corey Feist, who is part of the Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation. And so if you wanna go back and take a listen to that, we will have the episode linked in the show notes. But can you talk a little bit about how the pieces of this HRSA funding fit together? The grantees were one award, the Technical Assistance Center, which is the Workplace Change Collaborative that we work with you in, is another. Right. So HRSA put out a funding opportunity announcement and called for organizations to come in with their proposals on how to address health worker, their public safety worker well-being. And um, like I said, they put out 44 grants to organizations across the United States, different kinds of organizations across the United States. And then they put out one award, which is the Technical Assistance Center Award, which is the award that, that we got. Uh, we actually renamed ourselves the Workplace Change Collaborative to reflect the the kind of work that we're doing. And what we're doing as the Technical Assistance Center is, is I would say both providing what we would call technical assistance to the 44 grantees, as well as trying to turn towards the public and making sure that we're starting to provide technical assistance to the public, pulling from the lessons learned from the 44 organizations that are doing this work, um, as well as pulling from the literature, the expertise in the field, um, and and helping people find the resources that they need to, to actually start making a difference um, in the space. So we're almost like a combination between a clearinghouse for resources and a 30,000-foot observation post to watch what's going on across the field and across the grantees. Yeah, I think that that's a, a, a great description of, of what we try to do. 
it's about the privilege of being able to work with the 44 grantees who are on the front lines, who are every day working to implement, learning lessons, turning their programs and their activities to the places that are going to make the biggest impact and being able to pull those lessons in, as well as being able to sit in a, in a spot where we can connect with the other great thinkers, the experts in the field, and start putting those puzzle pieces together so that other people don't have to start at at the basics so that other people can start a little bit farther along. So I think the Workplace Change Collaborative is fantastic. And I was hoping that you could give our listeners a little bit of insight as to what the Workplace Change Collaborative has been doing uh, these last two years. What are the different elements? How has it evolved? And generally hear about your experience organizing this enormous effort. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I should say is, uh, as was mentioned, we have a number of different partners in this space. Uh, In terms of the part of our work where it's really about developing a learning system, a space where the grant, the 44 organizations that are doing this work can come together and share their best practices, share their challenges, share the ways, ways that they're uh, addressing those challenges. Um, our major partner is the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, who is pretty well known for running things, running these learning collaboratives. And the learning system has meant that uh, we have met uh, in meetings virtually, as well as in person, as well as on a monthly basis. We bring the we bring the forty we bring people from the forty four organizations together to be able to share the work, again, share the work that they're doing to um, share the challenges that they're facing to um, to collaboratively think about how to solve some of those problems. And so the learning system is a, is a big part of, of the work that we do. Related to the 44 grantees, we also really thoughtfully um, worked to gather information from them. And so one of the first things that the grantees were kind enough to do is, is they shared all their proposals with us so that we could look across the 44 and say, what, you know, for these organizations that were successful in competing to get these awards, what is it that they were proposing to do? Um, and we could really get a sense, again, of for leaders in the field in this space of addressing worker burnout, health worker burnout, what were they even proposing to do? And then over the two years, we've continued to track what did they do? What are they learning? What kind of impact are they having? Um, and that is the learning system side of it. Wonderful. I, I, I am curious to also if you could speak to uh, what are some of the awardees doing? What are some of these projects? What are some of the, the things that are, are being worked on here? Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that I should point out is, is the initial funding opportunity had a little bit of a focus on mental health, preventing suicide, and resilience. And so we actually see a a lot of the organizations working in that space. And that can look everything from on the mental health side, uh, making sure that they're screening um, the whole array of health workers in their organizations for for depression, sometimes suicidality, anxiety, right? Um, And then once you screen for those things, you have to do something about them. And so a lot of the organizations are, are doing activities or doing things to try to increase access to mental health services. And they're doing it in really thoughtful ways. Um, one of the real challenges about mental health in 
in in healthcare and for healthcare workers is is uh, the fear that there's repercussions that if I let my if I let a colleague or if I let my boss know that I'm having mental health issues or depression that that might put my job at risk um, and so as the grantees of these organizations have had to figure out how do I provide services in ways that people can actually come and get those services and get better and be able to stay in their job and to you know, be healthy in terms of uh, their mental health. And they had to think about how do we do that confidential, uh, 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 confidentially? How do we do that um, sometimes anonymously, sometimes using technology, sometimes working with external organizations. And so there's folks who are working on mental health. There's folks who are working on stress trauma. So for healthcare workers, there is stress and there's trauma that's just a natural, unfortunate part of your job. Um, and the culture of healthcare has often been, don't talk about that. Um, but all that does is bottle it up inside until um, people can't take it anymore. And and some of the organizations are working on trying to change that and creating spaces where people can talk about that stress trauma. Um, and, and, and then there are people who are doing resilience training as well. But I will say one of the really interesting things is, is when we looked across the 44 organizations, I think that there were organizations who had been in the space of really addressing health worker burnout, um, had had established offices of well-being that had been there um, for a few years in advance. Um, and the ones who kind of had were already walking down the, the, the path a little bit of addressing burnout uh, in their health workforce, in their organizations, um, we're actually probably pushing more towards things like leadership training, towards measuring um, health worker burnout, job satisfaction, turnover, all of those issues, and looking for and using that data to try to figure out how do we uh, how do we pick the right interventions for the right unit or for the right department or for the right place um, and advance those. A lot of a lot of places were working on things like how do we create spaces where we can hear our healthcare workers um, and then also make sure that as we listen to them and take what they tell us is are the problems, turn those into solutions and then feed that back to them and, and kind of keep the communication open. It's what we call relational um, strategies. So it's not just where the rubber hits the road. Is there enough staffing? All of which is important. Is there enough staffing? Is there mental health services? Um, how do, what do my workflows look like? Is there too much administrative burden? All these like buzzwords that you hear when people talk about these, these issues. We think of those as operational issues. It's where the rubber hits the road, how you deliver care. But there's something that needs to be done to say, but what's going on in my organization? What are the things that my healthcare workers are going to prioritize? What are the things that my healthcare workers want to prioritize as the solutions? And how do we create an environment where we're together? That we're not trying to pull things off of a bookshelf and drop it onto people and then fingers crossed that it works. Yeah. So it's interesting as you as you start to talk about that, it is a good place for us to talk about how the TAC how the Workplace Change Collaborative took a slightly different approach to the funding opportunity. Because you had mentioned that the funding opportunity asked to address burnout and resilience. 
in health workers and public safety workers. And I think as we talked early on in that response, we were all in agreement that that was part of it, but that there might have been more to it. Right, absolutely. Um, so there was the whole other part of the Technical Assistance Center work, which was to which was to build this na- quote national framework to address health worker burnout. And I think that when we approached that problem, we really wanted to approach it holistically. And I think one of the and I hesitate a little bit to talk about this because Wendy, obviously, you are the an expert on this issue, and you wrote a book on it um, on this issue of moral injury. And as we looked at this issue of burnout. I think that we recognize that there was this also rising awareness of this thing called moral injury. And if you if you think about what burnout is, it's been defined as this chronic workplace stress. For me, the recognition of moral injury is is is, is the idea that that chronic workplace stress sometimes it is a part of the job. Right. Sometimes it is the unavoidable parts of of healthcare. Um, one of the things I always note is is that. When you're a healthcare worker, a lot of times you're working with people who are in the worst places of their life, dealing with some new diagnosis, dealing with some chronic disease, dealing with their own mortality, right? Um, but then there's also an aspect of that stress that is because of the incentives and because of the decisions that that are being made around you that create an environment where you can't deliver the care that you came into medicine came into healthcare to deliver. And that might look a lot of different ways. It might look like I'm a primary care pediatrician. It looks like 15 minute visits right? where I'm constantly running to the next visit and constantly behind because I'm scheduled at 15 minutes because of the way that we pay for healthcare. And you're trying to talk to the families while you enter your note in the EHR. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not a nurse, but I think for nurses, it often looks like not enough staffing. Correct. And not having enough support, which means that you have, you're taking care of more patients than you can really handle. Right? And you know that you're not providing the care that you want to be able to provide. And they too, I hear them often complaining about having to take more care of the EHR than they do hands-on work with their patients. Yeah, absolutely. And they went into nursing to take care of patients, and it's very frustrating. Right, and right. And demoralizing and disheartening. And that was it. We saw that uh, many of us are healthcare workers ourselves on the team, not all of us, but we feel it. It's right. not just being tired. It's being angry. It's being frustrated. It's that feeling that I've been put I know what I should do, and I can't. Mm. And it's it's that it's that sense of um, Elena Perea that we had a, an episode with very early on. She said, "I knew what I was signing up for. I knew that I was going to be working long hours and seeing impossibly hard things. What I didn't know was how hard it was going to be to get my patients the care they needed. Right, and that's what breaks her heart. Absolutely. And I think that's what." That, that's the thing that I often hear clinicians saying burnout just does not address. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think that when we approach then the national framework and this, and this issue of how do we actually address burnout, we just didn't think that we could do that without recognizing that moral injury is something different. And then it starts to change how we approach 
the problem, the, the, the things that we need to do because, well, honestly, because when people are angry versus when people are just tired, yeah, you have to do something different to start with. Well, and it's, in order to accurately address the problem, you have to accurately frame it. Right. Right. If we, if we're not framing it in the right way with the right language or with the right drivers, then we're never going to get to a good solution. Right. And it's not that people aren't tired and that they aren't administratively overburdened and that they aren't understaffed, but it's that and. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and, and one of the things I reflect is, is I think when we talk about people being angry, sometimes I think that scares people a little bit. Um, it makes it feel adversarial. And, and I think that one of the key things is, is it doesn't have to be adversarial. Right. I actually think that it helps our healthcare leaders to, to, to understand that it's not, again, it's not just that people are tired and as a result of being tired that they're checked out, but they, to, to use your words, they feel that they have been betrayed and that they have, as a result, then transgressed their own ethics. And as a leader, if you can see that, I think you can start to engage in, well, start engaging your workers in ways that are aimed at, at really fixing the problem um, to a certain degree, re- reestablishing that trust. And it's not going to be easy because people are really angry. Um, well, and, you know, in when I practiced, right, when I was in private practice, I did psychotherapy as well as medication management. And one of the things that I often thought when people came in quite angry was what is this hiding? What is this anger protection from? And I think for most healthcare workers, it's the way to stay um, functional in a situation where they're sad, they're frustrated, they feel impotent, unable to move the system, and they see their patients suffering as a result, and that it's easier to be angry about that than to be sad and demoralized and feel disempowered, which is, and really the moral injury comes from that position of being disempowered. I, I want to add another element into this. I'm a psychologist and I've spent a lot of time around healthcare workers and working in, in you know, wellness programs and things like that. And I can confirm that most people are uncomfortable with their anger and other people's anger. <laughs> and my experience with you know, healthcare workers in particular is that one of the things that we tend to do with our anger is to turn it inward. Mm-hmm. We kind of internalize that anger, as you were speaking earlier about, you know, rates of depression and anxiety and substance use disorders and all of these things. And certainly addressing those issues using things like employee assistance programs and these different kinds of trainings. But asking the question, why? Why are why is our healthcare workforce suffering disproportionately from from these issues? And I feel like um, a significant piece of that is not knowing what to do with this anger, seeing anger as, as unprofessional or seeing anger as as inappropriate or making other people uncomfortable. So I think we see a lot of folks who are turning that inward and harming or harming ourselves further. Yeah, I think I mean I think the important thing about the moral injury framing of this and adding that to the conversation is that when you have 40 to 50% of your workforce who is in distress, it defies belief that 
40 to 50% of your workforce is that vulnerable and frail. So it must be something about the environment. And that's what moral injury does. It says, this isn't all about you. This is at least in large part about the environment that you're being asked to work in. So let's start thinking about that. Yeah, I would say it's also reflected a little bit in how, in in the approach to addressing this issue. And one of the things that we did is, is we built a big website, wpchange.org, um, where you can get in and you can look at, hey, if I'm a healthcare organization, what are the strategies that I might be looking at? It's it's aimed at helping people to frame the different strategies and to, if you want to self-assess, what am I doing in these different spaces? What am I not doing in these different spaces? And then connect people to the to the resources that, that might actually help them, you know, actually start doing some of these things. But one of the things I should say is, is we do have a small section that is focused on individuals, on the healthcare workers themselves. Um, and while if somebody has is looking for mental health supports, um, we definitely provide resources to those. But one of the major things that we really highlight in that section is advocacy. And how do you get involved in, in advocacy? And where are the places that you can find resources to be able to, um, to be a better advocate? And um, I'm quoting somebody, but somebody has pointed out to me that there's, there's quote, little A advocacy versus big A advocacy. And little A advocacy might be advocating for changes within your organization. Big A advocacy might be advocating for those big policy changes that are driving our organizations to behave in certain ways. And we actually believe that empowering people to be part of the solution is one part of addressing burnout. And if you're a healthcare organization and a and a, a healthcare organization leader, you can do that too. You can work with your healthcare workers to identify both the things that should change inside of your organization as well as the things that you want to work together to change outside of your organization. But when you're working together and people and some of these things aren't going to change easily, but when you're working together to make change that is about improving healthcare, being able to deliver the kind of care that we all all want, um, then you're together. Um, and that becomes part of the solution rather than, um, I work with, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I work with an organization called the Social Mission Alliance. And Social Mission Alliance is about um, what health professions education programs do or don't do to advance health equity. Um, and interestingly enough, we've had a little bit of pushback in certain places in, in terms of trying to get curriculum about advocacy, curriculum about social determinants into the medical school curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a little bit of a sense of uh, doctors should just put their heads down and do your job, right? Mm -hmm. If you're primary care, you go into the, um, into the room and you provide clinical care and you just keep your head down and you do your job. And, and I, I always interpret that also as, and you keep your blinders on and you don't complain yeah. when there's a problem with the system. And I think more and more, particularly um, as students and younger uh, people are coming up, they're like, no, that's not, that's not what we want, right? When there's a problem, we need to engage and we need to work to fix that problem. Um, and yeah. I think both our healthcare organizations and our, and our society at large can be, can, can do that, can engage in that as well. Well, I think this is maybe, you know, the first generation when physicians were expected to be quiet 
and not be community leaders and not be engaged in their communities. And so it really sort of doesn't fit with how how we have been historically as a profession. Yeah, I think that, well, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of changes going on. It was Correct. only within the past couple of years um, where uh, primary care physicians flipped from being more than 50% uh, kind of independently employed to more than 50% employed, right? Um, right? And so that really changes the the role of, um, uh, in this case, physicians, I think. Now, if you take nurses, if you take other parts of the healthcare workforce, um, I think that they've been, that that has been more the standard. And so I I think physicians are probably grappling with that change right now. One of the places that we see uh, a change as a result is is we're starting to see increasing unionization of physicians. And so when you become, when you become an employee, there's the question of how do you have voice? Um, I'm not advocating for everybody to go out and unionize. I think unions are incredibly important way for healthcare workers to be able to have voice, particularly when their organization may not be creating those um, avenues for them. Um, and we're seeing, we're both seeing an increase in unionization, um, a little bit more in our, our residents and trainees, but also with our physicians. And then I think that we're seeing an increase in um, strikes. Uh, associated with our significant, with different healthcare significant yeah. increase in in the number of strikes, and we actually um, earlier had an episode with a, a union organizer as well. Um, yeah, it's an option. Yeah, and my personal thought is is um, when healthcare workers are striking, we should actually be very thankful because. If they're striking, that means they're still engaged and they still want the system to improve. Um, When they have given up, then they leave and everything is worse for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've talked to an awful lot of unionizing physicians. What is consistent across them is that when they strike, they are not striking usually for their own benefit. They are striking because they can't take care of their patients. Yeah, absolutely. And their patients are at risk because their call schedules are too frequent. They don't have enough staff. They don't have whatever. They're worried for their patients and they can't, they've tried every other avenue they can think of. And this is sort of a last ditch effort to get the system to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I always reflect, I think that um, the narrative around striking can be, mm, that the story is not always, um, um, the story doesn't always capture that, right? Correct. Um, and I think, and I think, even when when the mental health workers uh, went on strike in uh, with, with Kaiser in Northern California, when the nurses went on strike in New York City, it was often about staffing, right? But staffing Correct. to make sure that there's enough staff right. to be able to provide the quality of care, right? It's not just hey, I just you know, I just need more people around me, right? Is I need right. more people to, around to, me to to make yeah. sure that patients get their their pain medications on time and that they're able to bathe them and that they're able to make sure that they support exactly. them if they need food right, or right, right. And all of those things. And all of that. Correct. Thing, yeah. yeah. So Candace, we just have a couple minutes left, but you know, we put a big, we put a big document out in the world earlier this year in our book. And now the workplace change collaborative has put out this national framework. And when you put something like that out in the world, you can't, you, you know, you're like, okay, there you go. You're free. Go out and wild on your own. 
Um, but you can't control what that life looks like for it. And I'm just wondering sort of what is your vision? What is your hope for what that will do? Um, I think that right now we are thinking a lot about how to get the, the website, the framework, the actionable strategies, the resources um, out to the people who need it. But what my hope is, is, is that when people use it, it is of such value that they share it and that it actually helps, whether it's health work, the frontline health workers in organizations who are saying, what should I ask for from my organization? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the supervisors and the leaders who are sitting in organizations. And in a lot of cases, I think that they're also like, what should I do? I, I want to, to, I want to do the right thing. I just don't know what it is. Right. Um, I hope it helps those people. I hope it helps the policymakers who are saying, whoa, we got a big problem. What are we going to do? I hope it helps them to advance policies that will then drive organizations to build better work environments, to create environments where workers can be supported, successful, deliver the care that people deserve to receive, too. Right. Well, thank you so much. And one of just to let people know that one of the one of the next steps is that we'll be doing a more in-depth podcast for the Workplace Change Collaborative coming up. So keep watch out for that. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Kimmy. Thank you so much, Candice. It was lovely to talk with you. So Kimmy, I I thought that was great. It was really so interesting for me to hear Dr. Chen pull all of this work together that we've done over the past couple of years. And I'm really looking forward to when she has an opportunity to go into even more depth in the podcast that the Workplace Change Collaborative is planning in the next several months. I completely agree with you, Wendy. My one regret about that podcast was that it had to to end. I could have I could have sat and, and had that conversation for a lot longer. And I'll say, particularly as a person who just jumped on this project in the last six months and, uh, you know, initially <laughs> felt pretty overwhelmed by all of the moving parts, it was really, really informative to hear Dr. Chen talk about all of the pieces and how they fit together uh, and how, how this thing really works. And I hope our listeners found this conversation as accessible and understandable as I did. Yeah. And... And for those who want to dive deeper, we'll put all of those links in the show notes of the things that Dr. Chen referenced and some of our previous episodes where people can get more information about unions and from Dr. Perea. So thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening and stay well.